Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Lawrence Hill's book, Someone Knows My Name, won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize 2008 award. It is called The Book of Negroes in Canada, and it's about the history of slavery. It follows African slaves from Africa to America and delves into the struggles for the character Aminata Diallo. Although it's a work of fiction, it's been heavily researched, and Lawrence named the book's lead character after his daughter to ensure that he could love this Aminata enough to lift her story off the page and into readers' hearts. He co-wrote The Desert tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq, a non-fiction account of Joshua Key's desertion from the war in Iraq. The book was named by Quill and Choir magazine as one of the top 10 books published in 2007. Lawrence has also written his memoir in the 2001 book Blackberry Sweet Juice on being black and white in Canada. He grew up in a white suburb in Canada with a black father and a white mother. Lawrence's books all touch upon identity, belonging and his ancestry and he's also written books about these topics called Any Known Blood and Some Great Thing. Lawrence Hill is the son of civil rights activist Daniel Hill III whose descendants come from African slavery. He lives with his wife and five children in Ontario. Lawrence, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Now tell us... Your character, lead character in your book, Aminato Diallo, how did she come into being and why did you want to tell this story? Well, uh, Aminata is a young girl of uh, 11 when she's abducted from West Africa in the middle of the 1700s. Um, So she came into being in my imagination that she's a fictional creation. But um, when, when I learned years ago about a movement of African peoples from Canada back to Africa in the 1700s, and that some of them were born in Africa and were not just going there from Canada but going back home. Mm. I started to imagine this woman's life story, and this imagining her life story became the core of this novel. Mm. Now, your family are descendants of slaves from Africa. Does writing about what happened to them help you at all find your own identity, or is it something that you're interested in in exploring yourself? Um, well, I have explored issues of my own identity in earlier works, particularly a memoir called um, Blackberry Sweet Juice mm. on being black and white in Canada. But this particular novel isn't really about finding my identity unless no. it's a figurative exploration. It's really about imagining the life of a of an 18th century woman who's, who's born free and caught up in, in the transatlantic slave trade and liberates herself later and has a very momentous life. It's really an attempt to flesh out and dramatize and imagine uh, the gritty details of the life of a woman caught up in this in this era, this tumultuous time. And what was it like researching the historical aspects of that book and also writing, you know, from a girl's point of view? It was fascinating to do the research. Uh, I mean, although I read widely and did lots of academic researching, 
um, the the most interesting parts of research were the personal ones, reading people's letters and diaries and personal accounts of men and women, black and white, who kept in the 18th century. And I could look at these accounts and begin to sort of imagine what my character's life might look like. Um, so it was a very uh, rich kind of research, and it really sort of helped me situate myself in the time and place. Writing in the voice of a girl and a woman was certainly a bit of a leap. <laughs> you know, they tell writers that they should write about things that they know and things that they've experienced, but I find that a somewhat limiting thing to tell a, a writer, and I found it liberating, actually, to imagine myself a woman in the 18th century and an African woman at that, and to imagine the, the, the life and the passions and the trials that she would have experienced. It was somehow freeing to write about somebody who couldn't possibly be me. Mm. Was there anything you did to help you get into that headspace? Yes. Um, yes, I did. Apart from all the reading, which was quite extensive, mm. um, I, I imagine I gave her my daughter's name. My daughter's middle name is Aminata, which becomes the name of the protagonist, Aminata. And, um, and I thought of her as my daughter. I, I tried to imagine that this was my child and what would have happened if my own daughter were caught up in the slave trade several centuries ago. How would she have survived, not just physically, which is already a miracle, mm. but how would she have survived emotionally so that she uh, emerged from this experience with her soul intact? Mm-mm. When did you decide that you wanted to be a writer? Oh, well, um, I was writing with some passion from the age of six or so, actually, the letters to my father to get the things I wanted. I had to write <laughs> letters for them. But, um, and so really, I was quite passionate about it then. But I'd say by 14 or 15, I was writing stories madly and um, ripping them up and writing them again and so forth on my mother's typewriter. And I, I think at that point, I... I I knew that I was going to write. I didn't know that it would be possible to be a writer with a capital W, that I could make a living from it, but I knew I had to write and that I would write. So um, you say you started writing letters to your father, and I understand there's a story of um, you wanted a kitten and your dad asked you to write a letter telling him why you wanted a kitten. Is that true? Yes, it is true. It's, it's, I realize it sounds a little bit uh, unbelievable, but it is completely true. I was six, and I wanted this kitten. And you know, six-year-olds, when they want something, they're unstoppable. And he said no. He was an austere, you know, dominating kind of African-American immigrant to Canada uh, and a, an authoritarian father. And he said no. And I asked again, and he said no. And I asked a third time, and he said, well, if you really want that kitten, write me a letter. and Tell me in the letter why you deserve it. And, whose allowance will pay for its cat food, and how you'll prevent it from having babies in the closet. <laughs> and if, if it's a well-rendered letter with no spelling mistakes, I'll give you a request, due consideration. So that, that he gave me that kitten after I wrote that letter, and from that point on, anytime I wanted anything, I had to write another letter for it. Oh, that's cute. I have to ask, what was the kitten's name? Smokey. Oh. <laughs> not, a, not exactly the most original name. So when you say that you were writing a lot, even from the age of six, but you didn't realize that you could be a writer with a capital W, when did that point come about? When did you realize, you know, I can make a living from this, I could write full time? Well, I didn't know that if I'd be able to make a living from it. And frankly, most writers around the world can't and never do. But that doesn't mean they're not writers. Um, uh, in most artists, you know, whether they're playing the saxophone or dancing or painting or writing short stories or poetry or novels, they, most of us can't make a living at it, at least supporting a family and doing only that. Most people have to do other things. But um, um, 
so I, the real moment wasn't so much feeling confident that I could make a living at it, but that I would be able to do it as a main activity in my working life. And that was around the age of 27, about half a lifetime ago, when I quit my job as a newspaper reporter because I worried that I was getting old at the age of 27. Right. I felt that I should leave and go off to Spain and write around the clock and do nothing but write all day for a year and, and uh, sort of isolate myself from my country and just get going. So it was at the age of 27, I quit my job as a journalist and started writing flat out, you know, all day, every day for a year. Mm. Now, you've co-written The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq. Tell us about how this came about and why you and Joshua Key decided to write this book about Joshua's desertion. Sure. Well, it was... uh... It was while I was finishing the novel, Someone Knows My Name, that I had the opportunity to write the story of Joshua Key. And so it's one of those books that's kind of written in the style of the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is written by Alex Haley, but about the life of uh, Malcolm X. And I wrote this book, The Deserted Tale, but it's about Joshua Key's life, and he gave me the information that I needed in order to write his story for him. Um it's just a stunning story that that so engrossed me about a, a poor Oklahoma farm boy who signs up for the military because he needs a job, gets sent off to the war in Iraq, and ends up being ordered as part of his daily military duty to raid the homes of Iraqi civilians, blow up their doors with explosives, charge into their houses at 3 in the morning, terrorize the occupants, and basically intimidate Iraqi, unarmed Iraqi civilians for the whole time he was in Iraq. Mm. And he... He was so horrified by what he was made to do that he eventually deserted, uh, fled to Canada, and where he's seeking refugee status. And it's a story about, a true story, about his time in Iraq and why he chose to flee the war and why he felt that was the moral decision to make. Mm. And have you had much feedback um, on this book? Um, well, it's been published around the world, including mm. in Australia, so mm. it's been very widely published. But... Um, you know, there's been lots of media about the book uh, in the world, mm. uh, but most countries, especially in Canada and the United States, um, audiences haven't really stepped into it very much. It's been a very quiet book. It's it's not generated a, a huge audience or attracted a great many readers, um, which is unfortunate, but it, it is the truth. It's an amazing story. Do you get um, feedback from readers at all directly, emailing you or, or contacting you about... I, I, I the... do, but m- most people are emailing me about the novel, Someone Knows My Name. And, right. uh, and I do get a bit of uh, contact from people with regard to The Deserter's Tale, but mm. not nearly as much as, as the novel. Mm. So did you first go into journalism? Is the first step in your career? Yes, it was my first job after university. Well, I worked for my father for a bit part-time while I was writing short stories, mm-hmm. just for a year or so, and then I did some more traveling in Africa. And then my first full-time job out of university was to become a journalist. Mm. And is it something, is, is it actually a hard switch to write, to go from, because journalism is very factual, it's non-fiction, you know, there's a, very, there's a certain way that you need to report, but then you write something that's fictional, such as Someone Knows My Name. Is it hard to make that switch? Yes. Yes, it is in many ways. I mean, obviously it draws on some of the same skills, mm. the capacity to observe and the capacity to draw things clearly for a reader. So um, clearly there are certain skills that overlap, but it's a very different kind of writing. Mm. 
And um, in journalism, you spell out things in a very bald, overt, direct way. And you just state things right up front, you know, um, like William was furious, you know, yes. if that were the case. But you just can't get away with that in, in fiction. You have to illustrate things by action and by drama. And so it's a, it's a whole different way of approaching creating a reality. And, and um, it is a very different way to write, I believe. What did you do, though, to get those different skills? Because, it, as you say, it is different. What did you do to try to hone your fiction writing skills? Well, the, the most important thing I did, which is what I think is most important for other writers who are now developing, is just to do it. Just to, as I say, playfully, G-Y-A-I-C, which stands for get your ass in chair. <laughs> sit, sit, sit down and do it over and over again. And then read your stuff and realize what's not working in it, rip it apart and do it again and again and fix it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And so the doing is really where most of the learning occurs. It's kind of like playing basketball. You know, you don't you don't become a good basketball player by reading a book about it. Mm-hmm. You have to play, throw the shots until you become really skillful at it. And, of course, you can read books about how to write. And, of course, it's vitally important to read literature and watch how other writers are doing things that you can't develop without that. But... But apart from reading other writers and how they're working, I think the most important thing is to write and then to rip your stuff apart and rewrite it and to do that over and over again. And that, for me, was the way I learned. And, and much of that, not all of it, but much of that is self-taught. Mm, mm, just through sheer persistence. Persistence and through the, 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 the sheer writing and revision. Mm. And, and many people who don't write much think that they're somehow cheapened by revision, think that they're getting away from their original genius. But, but of course, if you're a serious writer, you, you must revise endlessly before you come up with something saleable. For sure. So what are you working on now? Are you working on another book now? Yes, I'm writing another novel right now called uh, Underground, which you'll be amused to know takes place in a fictional country, which is a huge island in the middle of the sea, <laughs> one of the biggest nations in the world. And it's, ah. not, really, it's not really a meditation about Australia, but, but I do find myself amused to discover myself here in Australia when I've been writing this novel set in this fictional island. It's a massive island, but uh, in which one character has to be uh, sort of hiding as an illegal refugee. Right. And this is a, a completely fictional book. It's not like set in a certain period of history or anything like no, that? No, no, it's, it's, this one's completely from my imagination. It's a contemporary novel, unlike the Someone Knows My Name, which is out now in Australia, which is a, a historical novel. Yep. And it's a, it's a meditation on, uh, on, on the life of people who are illegal refugees, kind of living under the radar screen in developed right. nations. And so when you are writing, as you are now, can you describe to us your typical writing day? Is there a routine or how, how does it work for you? <laughs> you know, I wish I could tell you that I, my routine was that I woke up at five every morning, <laughs> had a coffee, sat down at the quarter to six, wrote till 12 and then fiddled around and did other things. But uh, my life is madness. I have five children oh who run in age from nine to 18 oh and a wife. And <laughs> there are flute lessons and karate lessons in school and dog doctors and dentists and uh, violin lessons, you name it, we've got it. And so um, our lives are madness, and I just write whenever I have the chance. And half the time it's when the children are asleep, you know, late at night or early in the morning or when I sort of steal time away or when they're in school. Um, but, But our lives are madness, and I wish I could tell you that I had a perfectly organized routine, but I just write whenever I can. Right. Do you have a particular um, 
you know, space that you need to do it in. Some writers only write in a certain room or, or anything like that, or it sounds like you're, you're so busy that you're kind of writing anywhere. Well, one of the real advantages of having been a journalist before is that you learn to write in conditions of chaos and madness. Yes. You're in loud newsrooms, people are swearing and talking on the phone and making noise all around you and clattering on typewriters back in the old days, at least. And um, so I learned to write in those conditions of chaos, and it, it was good. It was good training. And mm. so now, you know, I, I obviously, if I can have a room to myself that's quiet, that's wonderful. But I can also write in, in noisy conditions, and I just try to shut people out and just go. Great. So do you have a preference for writing fiction or nonfiction, or, in, or do you find one easier than the other at all? Um, yes, I do have a preference, and that is to, to write fiction. I love to write nonfiction. I was a journalist for some years, and I've written some nonfiction books, such as The Deserter's Tale, which I really love to do, and I'm mm-hmm. sure I'll write more. But what's closest to my heart, what really makes me most excited as a writer and a human being, is to write fiction, to write novels. Um, I, I, it just seems to be the most interesting challenge for me. That doesn't mean that it's a better form of writing than nonfiction. It just means that it's the one that speaks to me the most. And so using my imagination to create human lives on the paper and to sort of create stories about people and, and to draw readers into these dramatic tales, that's what excites me the most. Mm-hmm. And what would your advice be to people out there, up-and-coming writers, who, who would like to write? Well, I'd say that you have to find a way to live while you're writing. If you don't have a plan to earn an income while you're feeding your writing habit, mm. um, then you'll have to stop soon enough because you won't have sort of made arrangements to be able to sustain it. So you have to find a way to live because it, it might take you decades before you could realistically expect to be earning any kind of serious income from it. And you may never earn any serious income. Most writers never earn any serious or sustained income from their fiction, so they have to do other things. Mm. And so finding a way to keep living while you're writing is, is one important practical consideration. Um, but other than that, uh, um, it's not really a very romantic uh, thing to do or a very romantic lifestyle. It's sit <laughs> your butt in the chair, sit down and close the door and stop talking on the telephone and get to work and allow yourself to spend huge amounts of time in your own imagination and in, in to enjoy that process of just creating from nothing in, in your own mind. And so you have to be prepared for long bouts of solitude and not just to, to endure it, but to enjoy it and to revel in it and to find your own creative genius there. Uh, and you have to be prepared to spend a lot of time rewriting as well and not to feel that you're somehow above that or that, that that's the meaning to you. People do have a romantic notion associated with writing, don't they? And as you say, the rewriting is so important. Can you give listeners an idea of what proportion of your time would have been spent writing the first draft and then what proportion of the time in the gestation of the book is actually spent rewriting? Well, um, I spent about three years working on the first draft and then about one year revising. But that's um, a little... um, a little deceiving because the three years, it was on and off and on and off. It took a long time to bring it out. It took a long time to reach into my own heart and bring out that story. So it's not like I was writing around the clock for three years, mm. uh, but I, it took, it was slow. It was, it was in fits and starts. And I had to coax it out of my own heart. So it took a long time for it to mature on the vines and for it to come out. 
And so that was in fits and starts for three years. But the one year of revision was a mad, intense, flat-out burst of writing, you know, for hours and hours and hours every day for a whole year. Mm. And so the rewriting was extremely intensive. And the fact that it only spread out over one year um, sort of underestimates the real time I put in it in relation to the first draft. Sure. And you say that you do need to spend a lot of time, you know, in your own mind and, and in an isolated kind of space so that you can think about what you want to put in the book and think about, and, and you know, let your imagination go. With five kids and all those violin and flute lessons, how in the world do you get that time or do you actually schedule that time in? How does that happen for you? Well, again, I don't usually schedule that much time um, when the kids are around because they need so much. But when they're at school and when they're asleep or when they're away on holidays or when I'm out of the home, I, I get a great deal done. Usually about two or three times a year, I may go away for 10 days um, and just right around the clock in complete isolation for those 10 days. And I get huge amounts done then and really move a project forward. If I'm really anxious to get going on something or to keep moving on a project that's mm. sort of stalling, I'll just go away for and just sort of say goodbye to everybody for 10 days and, and write fiendishly somewhere else, like borrow somebody's cottage, you know, in isolation and just write there or something. But um, so I do that a, a few times a year also. Sure. And finally, which of your books was the most, I guess, the I guess enjoyable process for you and why? Well, you know, <laughs> when you're writing it, sometimes it feels you're ripping your heart out. Right. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's exciting to write, and I do like the process of writing, but it's also, it can be quite painful. And I was writing about extraordinarily sad and difficult mm. uh, human experiences, and in in someone knows my name. And so um, it's not necessarily a happy experience, even though it feels like a rich and satisfying one. Mm. Um, I tried to let some shafts of light into the story so it's interesting and readable and compelling and so a reader doesn't feel beaten over the head with the sadness of the novel. Sure. Uh, and, I, and I really worked hard to make it an interesting story with, with again, some shafts of light or optimism. But um, I would say that the most satisfying project to date has been uh, Someone Knows My Name, mm-hmm. the most recent novel. Mm. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to... Um, to to speak with you and I hope one day to be able to visit your center. Definitely. Thank you, Lawrence. Take care. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.